Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. Hi, this is Steve. At the heart of Stanley Kubrick's slow, abstract, and meditative film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, is one of the most thrilling, disturbing, and unusual sequences in the history of science fiction. In it, the frail, vulnerable human is pitted against the nearly omniscient and omnipotent supercomputer, HAL. But what makes the sequence so disturbing is how complicated our feelings are towards what can only be described as the film's only villain. Rather than clarifying things into a simple battle between good and evil, 2001's most recognizable narrative only serves to heighten the film's essential unknowability. Is Hal truly sentient? Why does Dave choose to leave the ship for the monolith? What is the nature of the Stargate he travels through? And what exactly happens to him at the end of the movie? 2001 is a film that never stops challenging us, and in part two of our exploration, we continue to wrestle with what Stanley Kubrick is trying to tell us. So, if you still haven't watched the movie, I highly recommend buying or renting it through our website, cinephiles.net, where you can get 2001 and every other movie we've ever reviewed. So, that's part two of our exploration of 2001 A Space Odyssey with special guest Scott Mance, this Friday on The Cinephiles. Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Al? 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 Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we continue our exploration of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey with our very special guest, Scott Mance. When we left our story, the HAL 9000 computer had predicted that the AE-35 unit would fail within 72 hours, and astronaut Dave Bowman was preparing to leave the spaceship in order to bring the unit back for testing. And, and by the way, there's another cool gimbal shot here, which is they walk through a spinning door. There's a cylinder rotating in the background, yeah. and they step into the cylinder, and the whole world sort of rotates as they go around the cylinder. And this is like double what we saw with the stewardess, because here the camera is attached to one gimbal that can spin one way, and there's another gimbal that spins another way. And what's happening is as they're walking uh, through the... Uh, the thing, the one is spinning and the other isn't, and the camera is spinning, and then the camera stops spinning while one part s starts spinning as they step over the threshold, and then that part starts spinning. I didn't explain that very well at all, but it's really cool looking. It's really cool to watch. It's yeah. really cool to see them both step on the area and see them spinning around. Yeah. Uh, the base approves their plan to go replace this thing, and now we're going to go out and do our repair. Um, and we get into our spacesuit. We go to the pod. We hear the sound of breathing. Stanley Kubrick. Oh, is that him doing the breathing? Stanley Kubrick did the heavy breathing. That's some good breathing, man. <laughs> um, he calls to Hal to prepare the pod. We hear him say, open the pod, pod the doors. Open the pod doors, Hal. And we have this shot of Hal's eye with the video monitor next to it, which is beautifully framed to see what's going on. An asteroid goes by the spaceship. There's a close-up of Dave, and we have this first time we see these lights reflected on the screen of his helmets. Um, and... There's this beautiful POV as him looking out as the pod goes out into space. This whole sequence is just so beautiful. Yep. Yeah, it really is. I, 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 I'm glad you brought up the asteroid going yeah. by yeah. the Discovery. It's just a it's little a detail shot. that's yep. just gorgeous. And we have to, again, say, there's no computers, folks. This is all models and composite shots. And this is even before one of the technologies we talked about when we talked about Star Wars is what made that movie possible is the invention of um, uh, computer-controlled camera moves. So they, they could do motion control and do the same camera move over and over again, exactly the same. This is 1965. 
through 68, they don't have that technology. Right. So right, right. everything they're doing is kind of by hand. Um, the doors of the pod opens, Dave floats out, he goes down to the, to the satellite dish. He pulls out some piece of equipment. Um, we see by the way that Frank is monitoring this whole thing from some kind of control room and he's suited up in a spaceship spacesuit, but no helmet, which is going to come in later. Um, Hal is monitoring this whole thing. He pulls out this box and, and then the sequence is over. And, and one thing I should say, they took about a year to shoot the film. That's in 1965. Kubrick takes more than two years to do all the special effects. Makes sense. That's why he, it comes he out. Shot, he shot the, uh, the human sequences from late 1965 through the middle of 1966. He shot the Dawn and Mana sequence in 1967, summer of 1967. Yep. Yeah, Kubrick takes up his time. And now we're doing some tests, and this, this unit looks fine. Well, hell, I'm damned if I can find anything wrong with it. Yes. It's puzzling. <laughs> That's all you got to say? <laughs> it's puzzling. And of course, Hal is still convinced he is standing by it's going to fail. Yeah. Which makes me wonder like, well, if it was going to fail. Well, it, but it, well, it also makes, because that's the other thing. Hal could be right. Right. We never get to 72 hours later to see if the thing failed. It could be the Hal on earth is wrong. Why did Hal say, uh, yeah, why don't you go out and put it back and watch, let the unit yeah. fail? Then it'll be easier to figure out what the problem was. Yeah. So these are three possibilities. One is Hal's lying. Two is Hal made a mistake. Three is Hal was actually, telling the truth. Hal was just right. Mm. And the Hal other Hal made Yeah, like, like the way the guys are testing out the AE-35 unit and they can't find anything wrong, you know, maybe they're just not looking in the right place. Couldn't he also be, if he is sentient, he's human, he's figuring this stuff out as it comes along to him in terms of sure. his humanity. So he's going to make mistakes or he's going to overstate stuff or he's going to catch himself in these positions where he's coming up with a dumb plan. Because the when emotions get involved, your logic sometimes can be skewed. Well, this is this is the question of the movie. Right. I, that's absolutely a possibility. Yeah. Um, and Mission Control agrees. They say this is a good plan, but they also say, hey, by the way, we have our own HAL nine thousand. Yeah, and it says that yours is an error in predicting the fault. Yep. I say again, an error of predicting the fault. And by the way, all the emotion in this movie is always underplayed. Yeah, we're just like okay. Um, and so it's uh, sorry about this little snack, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we go over this and we go over this thing like wait has there ever been an error with a HAL 9000 the answer is no I hope the two of you are not concerned about this no I'm not Al are you quite sure yeah I'd like to ask you a question though of course how would you account for this discrepancy between you and the twin 9000 well I don't think there is any question about it it can only be attributable to human error this sort of thing has cropped up before, and it has always been due to human error. He says it. He says it just like Grady in the bathroom in The Shining. You have always been the caretaker here. <laughs> How goes? It has always been attributed to human error. Which, by the way, in all dealing with the computers and all dealing with giving tech support to my parents, <laughs> it's almost always human error. Yes, <laughs> almost. But computers also mess up. Sure. Let's go down to the pod bay. Oh, Frank, I'm having a bit of trouble with my transmitter and C-Pod. I wonder if you'd come down and take a look at it with me. Yeah. See you later, huh? It's a whole ruse. Okay, so this is this is interesting. According to Gary Lockwood, so the, the, the commentary track on the Blu-ray is Gary Lockwood and Carrie Dulea. And normally... I'm not usually the biggest fans of actors' commentary tracks. I love actors, but they're talking, usually talk more about their experience on the movie. And I want to know more about the filmmaking and the process. And they don't always know so much. This one is great. And these are two guys who it's very clear. They've made a life off of this movie. Yes, yes they sure have. They yeah. go to science fiction conventions all yeah. the time. So they've talked they're about still around. <laughs> yeah. Here's what Gary Lockwood says. He says that the whole idea of lip reading and in the pod is his idea. He's, oh. He takes claim for that? He does. And here's what... And, and you know what? I have to say, his story is very convincing. Now, I think it's just normal that people kind of overemphasize their thing, but he says that Kubrick was trying to do all these subtle things to make Hal distrust the humans. And 
Gary was basically got bored on the set one day and, and Kubrick looked at him and was like, what are you bored? And he said, yeah, I'm bored. And Kubrick shut down the set for the day. He said, that's it. Everyone go home. And, and, and Gary's like, <laughs> sure, he's going to be fired. And then right. Kubrick calls him into his office and says, or do, said, hey, do you, you, you want a drink? You know, you're, I hear your family is Polish. Then he puts on Polish classical music and he gives yeah. him some vodka. And Gary's going, am I being what fired? What are you doing? Yeah. And he goes, no, what were you saying? What are you saying? He said, well, it just seems like we need something that's more obvious. And he says that's when he came up with the idea of this lip reading thing. And then what they did, and again, this is according to Gary Lockwood, is that they didn't have any script for it. So Kubrick brought the two actors to his office and said, improvise what you would say. And he recorded it. And then he went and wrote a script based on the recording. And then they did that and they recorded more improvs. And then he rewrote it and he rewrote it and rewrote it. And that's what's in the movie. Wow. Wow. Now, again, I don't never heard that from anywhere else, but he didn't, it didn't strike me like maybe Kubrick in the conversation had more of the idea than he did. Maybe he was already going in that direction, but it sounds like there's some truth here. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause what they do, they get into the pods and they say, rotate the pods, Hal and Hal rotates the pods. And then they flip some they switches. Cut, they, they cut off all the communication. So Hal can't hear what, what they're going to talk. And about. they say, rotate the pods, Hal, nothing. Rotate the pod, please, Hal. I don't think he can hear us. Rotate the pod, please, Hal. Yeah, sure, okay. Of course, also framed in the window <laughs> is Hal's eye. Is Hal's, Hal's eye. red eye? And now they have the conversation of what, do, what we, do we do? What do we do if this is a real mistake? Well, we'd be in very serious trouble. We would, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. What the hell can we do? Well, we wouldn't have too many alternatives. I don't think we'd have any alternatives. There isn't a single aspect of ship operations that's not under his control. If you were proven to be malfunctioning, I wouldn't see how we'd have any choice but disconnection. And they're very calm again. But we watching it are just t- tension filled. Oh my god! As viewers, because we're like, why is everyone so fucking calm? And this and is by all the way, falling apart. Yeah. They're yeah. they're going back and forth. I don't care how many times you watch two thousand one Space Odyssey. Yeah. So you're you're watching uh, Frank, uh, you know Gary Lockwood and Kier Delia talking back and forth about. Uh, there's only one thing we can do, uh, a disconnection because, uh, uh, you know, like he controls everything on the ship. And then the next cut is of the, the pod bay and then Hal's eye. And then you just see the lips, him looking at the lips, go back and forth yeah. to Frank, to Dave and everybody in the audience. I don't care how many times you see the movie. When you realize that Hal is reading their lips, everybody goes, uh oh. <laughs> it is true. a great oh shit it's moment. True. It, it is a great oh shit moment. <laughs> they taken every precaution so Hal yeah. could not hear them, right. but they did nothing <laughs> to make sure that Hal could not see them and see their lips move. Right. And then it says intermission. <laughs> By the way, I think there maybe is something else you can do other than disconnect. Like you're, you have a piece of machinery, a computer that's having a malfunction. Maybe there's some, you call tech support, you know, get on a hotline. Maybe but, get something you could do. Going back to, to the fact that maybe Hal was telling the truth the whole yeah. time. That, you know, he goes, just a moment. There's a malfunction in the 35 unit. Well, no one can detect this. They, right. they. They pulled the equipment off the uh, the actual transmitter, and they can't find anything wrong. But that doesn't mean that the humans are not making a mistake. Right. Like, I just always assume that Hal deliberately let that thing – said the thing was going to malfunction, but, but then why did he do that? Or was it a mistake? It never, ever occurred to me that he actually might be telling the truth, and the astronauts just, you know – they just weren't looking in the right place. Well, and it doesn't occur to the the astronauts, you know, they, do, I, this is another point. They don't think of Hal as sentient. No. Because they immediately go, we'll shut him down. They don't go, oh, we'll try to work this thing out. Right. They go, well, if he is, if he has made, this idea that if this computer who has never made a mistake has made a mistake, then we must destroy that computer. Right. That's a pretty extreme reaction. And so Hal's going to have an extreme reaction to that because now we're going to go out and it's now Frank going out to put the uh, device back. 
This is as we come back from intermission. And I love the, and we see uh, Dave is now in the control room with no helmet on and he goes out, he leaves his pod. And as he floats towards the satellite, the pod turns. Mm -hmm. The way the pod turns and the point of view when the pod faces the audience and moves towards you. And the arms have started the to arms move. stretch out. It's a scene from Frankenstein. Sure. It is a scene Ooh. from Frankenstein. And then as the pod gets closer, you see the real quick close-up on Hal. And then Dave turns his head and he sees the pod spiraling out of control. And now Frank, Frank's uh, tube... To, for his oxygen yeah. in the spacesuit has been cut and he's frantically trying to plug it back in. And, it's, yeah. well, I mean, and that, that you to don't me, see the, you don't see what happens. You don't see what happens. You just see him spinning in space trying to, and yeah, the use and, of and, and that to me is, is, is disturbing. Yes. Because obviously, I mean, like, like 2001 is one of the only movies that, that realistically does not use sound in space. Yeah. Um, and but you just see him frantically trying to put his hose back into the socket. It's so upsetting. It's, it's so upsetting. disturbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is really disturbing. And I just want to go back because I think the point about Frankenstein is so important yeah. because Frankenstein and it's funny, the conception of what Frankenstein is, it, which really comes from the movies, as opposed to what Frankenstein is in the book. Mm -hmm. But the idea of the scientist who's created the thing that can't control that becomes dangerous. That is a classic trope through all science fiction. And Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is arguably the first fr science fiction story ever. But then also one of the themes of Frankenstein, particularly in the book is we should feel sorry for this creature. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of the weird things that happens in 2001, because I think we start off not trusting Hal, And then in this moment, we are terrified of Hal. Mm Hal -hmm. is really scary. And what's going to happen is at some point, I think we're going to feel sympathy for Hal. Yeah. Um, so Dave obviously sees this thing happens. He runs to the pod. He gets, he's talking to Hal, like what happened? What happened? Yeah. He gets into the pod. You have a good fix on him. I have a good fix. He gets in the pod, the other pod, he heads out. And what do we notice about Dave? As he he's not him? wearing his helmet. Right. No helmet. Big mistake. Yeah. And he goes out and we have a, a really long sequence of him kind of, getting to Frank's body and he right. grabs Frank's body, turns around, heads back to the ship. And then you cut back to the discovery. And while you're back on the discovery where there's complete silence, but then you see Hal start to mess with the light support systems of the three crew members in hibernation. Yeah. And he slowly kills them off. Yep. So at that point, you are near the planet Jupiter. Dave is the only astronaut left alive, and he is not on the Discovery. And, and, and the murder of those frozen astronauts is so disturbing and upsetting. Yeah, it is very disturbing. What does it say? Life systems terminated or something yeah, like that? Yeah, it says life system malfunction. Malfunction, yeah. yeah. And then... Uh, life functions and terminated. Then, yeah. Life functions terminated, yep. It's awful. And then there's a long, several shots it's of... murder. It. Of course. Like, what he's doing now is murder. You, you, and it's so, it's so, I mean, cold blooded is a ridiculous word for it for coming from this computer. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of, by the way, is the murders of in the Matrix where, um, oh, Cypher. Yeah, when Cypher turns. Yeah, when yeah. he turns on them because it's just their, their non conscious bodies yep. that he kills. Yep. Is awful. Um, uh, yeah, the idea of like you went into suspended animation, you left, you know, and then you yeah. never woke up. That was it. Mm -hmm. Um, so now Dave is outside and he says, Open the pod bay doors, Hal. <laughs> and he repeats it. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Yes, Dave. I read you. The performance of Hal is amazing. And, and Dave's performance is great. Because he's keeping it, keep it together. Because his job, I mean, as an astronaut... He is trained to react calmly to stressful situations, and that is what he's doing. Uh, talk about a stressful situation. <laughs> Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? 
I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the part against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. Busted. Busted. How do you respond to that? He's like, I won't argue with anymore. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose. Goodbye. <laughs> oh, man. It's the it's a breakup. It's a breakup. <laughs> what it's a breakup. A breakup because he's like this conversation. There's no. You know what? I don't want to talk to you anymore. It's over. I'm hanging up the phone now. <laughs> and that's basically it. That's basically it. And you're like, wait, no, wait, no, wait, wait, wait. Well, and what's so horrible about all of it is Hal has only one emotional tone to speak in. So he's this. Yes. He's saying everything exactly the same way. Right. And the, again, it's that voice performance is so perfect because it's so scary. Well, I think it was programmed to speak this way. This is how I yeah yeah. This is how I talk to you, John. Um, right. So so Dave <laughs> has to get inside the discovery, right? Yeah. And he he tells how he says he says I'm going to go through the emergency airlock, and how goes without a helmet? I don't think that's going to right. But he's it's not going to be very anyway. pleasant because, like you said, he is resourceful and he's you know maintaining composure. Yeah, and he figures out a way to get in. Nope. He lets go of the body. He has to. Yeah. He has to. Yeah. Breaks it a little bit. And then he goes over to the airlock. And again, he uses those arms to open up this airlock. Um, and the door opens. Um, and it's funny because one of the things Kubrick does so well is continually disorient you with the the direction of screen direction of shots. Yeah. Because there's no up or down. And so um, he rotates around so that now his door. And we've seen, by the way, a couple of times these things it says on the pod, explosive bolts. So we know that's, you know, a good plant. Um, and you can see him sort of stealing himself for something. And those lights again are playing on his face. He opens some special panel, pushes some button, uh, and red lights start blinking. There's a warning nose. He, uh, there's a warning nose. There's a warning noise. <laughs> um, he, he turns around in his seat facing forward, uh, towards camera, hits some other buttons, more warning noises. And you can see his... He's really stressed because something really, really intense is going to happen, which is he's going to go into space with no helmet. And then there's this POV shot from the perspective of the airlock. And this shot is totally amazing. It's amazing. The speed, smoke, all of it. And and by the way, you know, you're in the pod with Dave hearing the sirens noisier and louder. And then he just gets in the position where he... He holds his breath and he he squeezes his eyes shut, and then you don't hear the explosion, but you see the the explosive bolts go off on the door, and Dave flies through, and he and he bounces back like he's going to go back outside the yeah. airlock. Yeah. Fortunately, he stops himself and he pulls the door shut. And then you uh, hear the rush of air, and you hear the rush of air come in, and you see if you look closely, you could see. Could see uh, Kier Dulia smile when he realizes that he 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 was successful. Yeah, it is amazing. It is it is one of the most amazing shots in film, and I have to tell you how they did it because it is fascinating to me. So first of all, that whole set is vertical, so that the uh, you're looking from the ground straight up. So when he is in the pod, he's actually directly above the camera. He's on a wire. And there's a guy who apparently was a circus performer who is standing on a platform and he is holding, there's knots in this rope that he's holding and he is holding Kier, Kier I forget his name. Kier Delea. He's holding Kier Delea up by this rope. And when the explosion happens and the door opens, he literally lets go of huh. the rope and let it slide through his hand. So, so he's falling at full speed and he holds his hand around this rope. So then when it gets to the next knot, he will stop him. And that knot happens inches from camera. Wow. So if he doesn't catch him at that knot, he just falls 15 feet straight into a solid floor and a camera. Right. So then, but the, the circus performer is also standing on a platform. So 
What he does then is to jump off the platform, holding onto the rope, and that is what pulls him straight back up to slam into the door. Wow! And that then he holds him there for uh, while he does the airlock, and then he lets him slide through again for another rope as he floats down to the bottom. Wow! They only did it once. <laughs> that is and, a crazy what's, dangerous. What's, it, what's stunt. interesting yeah. is is in that shot when you see when you see Bowman pull the you know up. Uh, pull the plug pull the the lever to shut the door and the air goes off yeah and you see the look the smile on his face you have to really look look at his face to but he does smile and then it's it's back on how the shot is right. back yeah. on how like boy you in trouble <laughs> um and now we see him in a green helmet because he got another helmet which means to me by the way that hal has dumped all the air out of the space out of the oh. space station oh, Maybe, oh yeah. right he turned off the atmosphere sure. like why yeah. would Right. Okay. Right. So Dave is back on right. the discovery. Right. So, well, I better. How do I get him off? Well, I'll just I'll just shut down all the life support systems. Right. Yeah. But he's got his helmet on, and again, we're in a handheld shot. This is the next handheld shot. Again, handheld by Stanley Kubrick, right. and it gives this real chaotic feeling. And now Hal is trying to talk his way out of it. I know everything hasn't been quite right with me. But I can assure you now, very confidently, that it's going to be all right again. I feel much better now. I really do. Look, Dave. I can see you're really upset about this. Talk about disturbing. And also uh, uh, exhibiting a little nervous laughter yeah. when you when Hal says, I think you should take a stress pill. I love that one. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill and think things over. You know, full confidence, I'll be able to do the mission now. And, and Dave's just not having it. Yeah. Well, and it's just that same tone. Mm -hmm. You know, he's just, I know everything hasn't been quite right with me, but I can assure you now, very confidently, that it's going to be all right again. Yeah. It's just so calm, reassuring voice. You know, he's a child. He's yeah. a child that's been caught and is now trying to do every tactic in the book. I promise to, I'll never do it again. Yeah, I pro all that whole jazz, hoping daddy doesn't spank him, and yeah, it, there's no way out of this one. And he admits to making some mistakes. Yeah, there were which poor is decisions. Interesting. I know I've made some very poor decisions recently, but I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be back to normal. I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence in the mission. And I want to help you. Then Dave opens up some wall and he floats into the memory center. Brain. Yep. It's the brain. He's Hal's literally brain. inside Hal's brain. Mm -hmm. And it's another amazing set. And he starts to take apart Hal's brain. Yeah. And this is where I feel for Hal. Right. This is where you feel really for the first time in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And are you saying feel at all? Feel, 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 you know, feel empathy for yeah. somebody. And it happens to be how. Yeah. It is a really emotionless film in a lot of ways, which is so weird yeah. that a film that is not, it's, it's inspiring a lot of things, but strong emotions are not one of them. Well, it's, yeah. And who are you feeling for? This artificial life form who is trying to kill humans. And he went from killing and murdering these humans. And now all of a sudden you have sympathy for him because yeah. of the way he's begging for his life uh, and trying any way possible to stop. And you're watching Dave slowly kill Hal. Yeah. And, listening, and listening to Hal's voice yeah. experience his death. Yeah. That yeah. is... That is something. And as the voice slows down. Yeah. And, and, it's, it, it's, and it's even worse. Oh, sorry. And he says, I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm afraid. That's, I'm that's afraid the Dave. chilling part. Yes. Yeah. Stop, Dave. I'm afraid. 
I'm afraid, Dave. That you go from feeling sorry or, you know, this nervous laughter about the stress pill, and then I'm afraid. Yeah. I'm afraid. Like, ooh, I just got the chills. Mm. Um, yeah, and he's slowly pulling out these things, and as each thing he pulls out, Hal's voice slows down. Yep. And you could hear you hear his death in this. I think there's no other death in film that you experience in this methodical, slow, step by step way. It's like it's like the slow knife being pu- pushed through the guy's chest in Saving Private I Ryan. I was just gonna make yeah, that comparison. That's the, Goldberg. Yeah, yeah, where it's just so slow because you can't stop it. My mind is going. I can feel it. I can feel it. And uh, he's having him sing the nursery rhyme. Well, this Daisy what, Bell, he, a bicycle built for two. Yeah. So he reverts back to essentially his yeah. first public demonstration, right? In which he, well, you know, he says hello to people. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I am a HAL 9000 computer. I became operational at the HAL plant in Urbana, Illinois on the 12th of January, 1992. And he sings Daisy. My instructor was Mr. Langley. And he taught me to sing a song. If you'd like to hear it, I can sing it for you. Yes, I'd like to hear it now. Sing it for me. It's called Daisy. Here's what's interesting about the choice of Daisy. Again, at Bell Labs, when they're trying to figure out how to design the first computer voice, and this is in the early 60s, and what they figured out is that it's really hard to reproduce the sound of a voice and the articulation of vowels, and they could make it work better if they had the computer sing. And the first song a computer ever, the first words ever spoken by a computer are Daisy. Yep. Wow. That's mm-hmm. that's why this happens, and you can go see it. By the way, you can go look look on YouTube, and you oh, can cool. see see the first computer singing Daisy. So, so the first computer does sing Daisy. Mm-hmm. Before this, that's why they chose wow. this. Oh man, yeah. Um, it is the and the singing of Daisy right. is yeah. so right. it's slow, slow, like disturbing. Like Hal is dying slowly, well, and it's interesting too. By the way, is that he says Hal asked, "Do you want me to sing the song?" And Dave says, "Yes, Hal. Yeah. Sing it for me." his own child it's it's man killing its own creation it is killing its own creation and it, it it's so powerfully symbolic it is killing the child well and i think we do see genuine emotion from dave yes. at this moment and i don't know if it's the adrenaline i think a lot of it is like well frank just got killed i just went through yeah, this airlock yeah, yeah. you know but 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 how much of it is feelings for how i don't know um, well, you have to factor it all in don't you they've been with him for 15 for 18 months on that ship with right. al also uh, they're the all this happened because their stupid asses didn't cover their mouths up and they were there and he read their lips and all these people yes. died. So maybe Dave has a certain bit of guilt for being caught out with or, this or maybe dumb plan. maybe he's a little freaked out because he's this far out to Jupiter. Yeah, true. And, and he has, he is if he kills the computer, yeah, I mean, you're he's by himself. Yeah. So uh, what, and you want to hear what the actor was thinking? <laughs> sure. So what he thought was he thought this was of mice and men and George. Oh, and Lenny. yes. And the rabbits. That's a great Tell me connection. about the rabbits, George. Yeah, that's a great And I connection. think that totally is what it is. Yep. Yeah. I think that's a great a great metaphor for the actor. Okay, but now at this moment, just as uh just as Hal is fading fading out. Good afternoon, gentlemen. And there's this voice. Yeah. This voice out of nowhere. And Dave is like, What the hell? What? Did, what, did someone just say something? And he turns to the screen and it's Haywood Floyd. Yep. Yep. And he 
finally reveals the truth behind their mission. That 18 months ago, an object, the, the, ver- the first sign of intelligence off the Earth was discovered, buried on the moon, and uh, its uh, origin and purpose still a total mystery. <laughs> yep. And then we cut to Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. Which is a weird title card. <laughs> and we go into this sequence. And By the way, we're still in the Dawn of Man. Just wanted to say. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> um, I think we always will be. Um, uh, we see now what is floating in space around Jupiter, but the monolith. Yeah. And, and this is now being done to the score of atmospheres, mm. just like we heard the other times we saw the monolith. By the way, when, when I was watching this with my wife, what Karen said is, can you imagine what the choral voices f- thought right. when they got this gig? And they're like, you want me to sing what now? Because it is some weird, weird uh, choral arrangements. Yeah. Again, the shots are amazing. Yeah. Shots of the moon. We see the discovery. We see sunset across Jupiter. We see a close-up of the floating monolith. We see the, we see a pan from the planet to the suns and then it when moves you see, to discovery. When you see the I mean, close-up of Jupiter and and uh and it's 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 panning down and you see the the cloud formations and you see the terminator uh and then you see in the dark the the, the dark side of Jupiter, you see Looking again like a sperm, the, the discovery yeah. going across yeah. the, uh, the 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 atmosphere of Jupiter, and the pod bay doors open. And this time, it looks almost like a mouth. I think. Okay, opening. Up. This is interesting. The pod bay doors open. There's only one pod left. And up to this point, every time you saw the discovery from the front, you saw the lights on in the bridge. Mm. You saw the lights mm. on. Uh, whether Frank was sitting there. Every time they showed the front of the Discovery, the lights were on in the bridge. When Dave Bowman leaves to investigate the monolith in that pod, the lights are out. He knew he was not coming coming back. back. Well, this is, and this is one of the big questions of the movie. Why does Dave leave? Was he ordered by uh, the, you know, by Haywood to go do this investigation? Was the mission dead because all the crew members are dead and he's the only one? Was he committing suicide? Is he does he know what's about to happen? What has happened between Hal's death and his decision to go out in this pod? Well, he's that far out. He's like, well, I might as well just do my best to complete the mission. But what's the mission? To investigate the monolith. Yeah, I mean, I I think we can't know. I don't think we can know what what actually has led him to make what, this choice. What what was the mission? Like, what was the the original mission that they were told? Those guys didn't know that. Like, they, that's why they the, just like, oh, you're going to Jupiter. Oh, okay, great. Right. That's why Dave is freaked out by the message because that's the first time he actually hears what the actual mission was. Is that Haywood recording? Well, and all maybe they know that's is, why. Maybe all, that's why. He decides to go ahead and complete the mission. Yeah. Well, but he's told that he's like the their mission is to investigate this art, this is this extraterrestrial intelligence that has only now been discovered for the first time. Right. And the other four astronauts are dead. The computer is dead. And he's like, I am the only way we are going to complete this mission is if I complete this mission, I have to do my job. Well, I just think that we lo- we know so little about what's going on because all they know on the moon is that they found this thing, and when they found it, um, they got a radio signal that was coming from Jupiter, mm-hmm. and and they say we think this is you know extraterrestrial intelligence, but we don't really know anything. Right. And then there's a cut from Dave getting a very very short message that says, "Hey, we we sent you here because of this radio signal." To him leaving the pod, we don't know how much time has passed. We 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 just we know very very little about why this choice is made. My gut is it's something like what you're saying. But it is very strange. But it is not as strange as what is about to happen next. What happens next? You're seeing the monolith float around Jupiter, and then all the planets are symmetrical, yep. and, the, and the monolith disappears. Yeah. And then everything disappears. The pod starts shaking uncontrollably, and there's just no turning back now. Yeah. So, again... So many parts of this movie yeah. that you watch it over and over again, and it never gets old. It still has a, just an, an incredible effect. 
And and this is definitely something that Douglas Trumbull was famous for contributing to 2001 uh, with the uh, the split screen with the lights. And uh, now what's happening? Where is he going? What is this Stargate? I mean, loaded questions that no one really knows the answers to. Yeah, but I find the connection with Dave to the guy, the ape in the first part of the movie. Would you guys say the moon, the moon, moon watcher, moon watcher? Because everyone's freaking out about the monolith. The Moon Watcher is the first one that ventures out by himself to touch it. I totally agree with this. And I think that's Dave. Dave is venturing out to touch it. Everything, Everybody's freaked out about how Dave is venturing out to touch the monolith. And the monolith appears in space. Well, and we don't know what happened inside Moon Watcher's head the moment he touched that monolith. Right. He might have had a whole trip. Right. We don't really know. So... You remember back at the beginning of this podcast when I gave a warning to the people who hadn't seen the film before? Well, I'm giving it again now because I would say that this Stargate sequence, this is what made my girlfriend want to break up with me (laughs) because this is nine minutes long of crazy, surreal visual effects. There's no more dialogue the rest of the movie. It's 15 minutes of silence. Yeah. Or, you know, music, whatever. Yeah. But like, well, and in particular, this sequence is just colors and lights. And awesome. it is just... Now, I don't know if Stanley Kubrick did acid. <laughs> My guess is that he did. But this is a trip. I never it's did the tr- ultimate trip. Yeah, well, I never did drugs. And yet I understood what drugs were like by watching this sequence. Okay, now, now this is, is interesting deep. because it was the... The uh, when a movie was a fish was released for the first time, reviews were very mixed, reactions yeah. were very mixed, and it was only when the the uh, young the people marketing decided to play into the uh, counterculture oh. and and say how much of a wild trip the movie was, you know, drug trip. Yeah, that's when you know that generation really embraced the film. It makes sense. But you know, during this. The smorgasbord of effects <laughs> of all inspiring visuals. You start to see some, some, some visuals that look very familiar. Uh, the pod has has become just like this, like shooting yeah. thing that again looks like a sperm. Yeah, uh, there is uh, another moment where it looks like there's a a womb. Yes, you know, it looks like there's that there's a, something is being born. The hints are there. The hints are definitely of there. the space baby going to be born. So, so a couple of things. So just te- child technically, what we are seeing. So, the a lot of it is something called split scan photography. Mm-hmm. Which I don't really know what it is, but they actually are photographing all sorts of things like architectural drawings and all this stuff to create these images, and it creates this horizontal or vertical, you know, weird color space. Yeah, and then it goes into a more organic feeling thing with liquid stuff, which is apparently like. It's it's Kubrick, I think, in his house with like glass and water and dropping um, uh, like lacquer and different colors of paint, and they're all about maybe a couple inches big. That he's doing. Apparently, his whole family is like, "Could you please stop that stuff <laughs> smells?" And he's just just so excited about these little drips that are being created. And then we go to the section where it seems like you're flying over real landscape planet, yeah. yeah, which they are. It's actually northern Scotland. And Monument Valley oh, wow. that is doing through all these weird color processes. There are even things where you see like diamonds floating over these split skin. Right. And that is they took the the uh, things they were filming of these weird drawings and weird color screens and they projected them on, you know, tetrahedrons. And then they rebuilt those composites in, to create these images. I mean, it's just this is months and months of crazy work to make all these visuals. And that's the first time a shape other than a flat space or a square or a circle rather is seen in the movie the diamonds oh interesting because it's all this stuff is foreshadowing a new man a new dawn of man a new uh the next phase of man all of this that you see here even where he ends up landing in that room yeah am i jumping too far can we go into the room let me just say one quick thing which is intercut with all these weird images you see these weird freeze frames of dave's face yeah very disturbing and then we see shots of his eye it's fear yeah pure and unadulterated i think it's beyond i think it's bigger than fear but yes right it is is you're seeing the face of god and some quick shots of dave's face like he is just like trying to hide behind something in his helmet yeah because he is terrified. I mean, because even there's, there's even a shot with his face 
away from like looking he's, forward. Like he, can't, like he can't even look forward yeah. and just, you know, like, or his, his, he's so terrified that his mouth is wide open. Yep. You know, like, like they really put, he went through the ringer. Yeah. And after nine minutes of this crazy, unlike anything that's ever been seen in film, and this build of music and these shots of his eyes, and then suddenly, it's over. He's in a room. The pod is in a room. Yes. And Dave Bowman is quaking, shaking, terrified in his spacesuit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And on the outside, you say you couldn't hear any more dialogue by this point. Yeah. But you do hear something. Mm -hmm. You hear what you hear inside this hotel room. You hear laughter. Yeah. You hear laughter you hear whispering this is all part of the extraterrestrial intelligence that brought him through the stargate that brought him to this point this is this is this is being done for a reason he made it this far he made it to jupiter in spite of the obstacles that got in his way. Yep. You know, like when they found the monolith on the moon and they traced the beam to Jupiter, even even like all they had to do was trace the beam to Jupiter. They were on their way to that monolith around Jupiter. Yeah. And then Hal interferes and Bowman overcomes that obstacle. Yeah. Like the five of those guys, if you take the other three out of hibernation, they would have been there to witness the next stage of, of human evolution. Yeah. But in spite of, of all these other obstacles that were thrown against Dave, he still survived. Mm-hmm. And he is now in this hotel room. He's, his life is being hurried along as he sees himself grow older. Yeah. You know, he's, he's sees himself outside the the pod, but he's still in a spacesuit. But his face has all wrinkles on it, yeah. and he's walking around the hotel room. Well, and then and then when we cut back, he, so he's in the pod. He looks through the window. He sees himself, and then we cut out of the pod, and we're with that version. Of the and older the pod version, is gone, and the pod is gone. Yeah, and then I mean, this is fully in the realm of experimental films. Right. Like we're in a play, and and we should describe what what you call the hotel room. I've heard it called that before. Although I have no idea, did Kubrick call it a hotel room, or is that what just people interpreted it as? But I've heard that name. Yeah. Is that the decorations are sort of old fashioned European? Well, it's Age of Enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. But the walls and the floors are glowing. Yeah. So there's this weird mix of science fiction, and and there's lots of interpretations for why the room this, is this way. Like. One is that the aliens read his mind and have pulled some of the details out of mm. his mind, which is all the furniture, but they actually have built it within a, one of their sci-fi kind of spaces. Yeah. Um, so he see, so he's now in the the orange astronaut suit is an older man. He's kind of looking around and he hears something. He hears somebody eating. And he looks over in the room and there's a man with white hair and dark clothes sitting eating. With his back to him. With his back to him. And we're in, like, I think an over-the-shoulder, and then we go to the man who's sitting eating who hears something, and he turns, and it's Dave, but older. Yeah. And and when that happens, the Dave in the white space, in the, the orange spacesuit, is gone. Yep. Because he gets up out of the chair. And goes and looks. And goes and looks, and nobody's there. Right. He goes back to his the table, and he sits down, has a little drink out of a beautiful crystal glass, eats a little longer. And then he reaches for the glass again and knocks it off the table. And it breaks. And he reaches down to pick it up. And he hears something on the bed. And he turns his head and looks over on the bed. I love it. And there's Death a bed. Yeah. And there is a very, yeah. very old Dave, which is 12 hours of makeup, by the way. Oh my and he's on the bed. And there's no other man in the room. And then. That old, old man, at the moment of his death, we can only assume, reaches out forward. He sees something in front of him. He reaches for it. He leans forward. And then we see what is in the room. The monolith. The monolith. Yeah, the monolith. 
and the and at this point the music is growing again just like it has before and then when we come back and see the bed again what do we see the star child star child a fetus a baby floating in space and then what what do we hear as we begin to hear the same music that we began with thus spoke zarathustra yeah and then we're in space and we're in space Then we see the Earth, the Star Child, Dave, as the Star Child has returned to Earth, evolved for the first time, really, since the Dawn of Man. And this is a magical film moment. The music is climaxing. We're, 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 we've gone back to the beginning of life as we know it. We've gone through this whole person's life in this completely unique and surreal way. And the music booms through. And then it's over. And that is the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey. You know, when this movie premiered in Washington, D.C. and in New York, people walked out. They were bored to tears. (laughs) Like, what the hell was that? And again, here we are 50 years later. And it it is one of the great milestones of cinema. So, so I have two quotes. One quote is Rock Hudson went to see it at the Cinerama Dome, walked out in the middle saying, what kind of bullshit is this? <laughs> of course. Pauline Kael, the, one of the great, the, basically the great critic of that time, who was so important for Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate and all this new cinema, her quote about it is, that movie was monumentally unimaginative. Wow. Well, they can't get it right all the time, can they? Yeah. But this is also one of those movies where critics came around, where people, the first time, and and just as, you know, my wife has come around on it, is that this isn't going to be easy, you know? Like, this is going to take a little bit of work. Um, And and as you said, the establishment hated it, and then when the counterculture started to find out about it, it suddenly became, it suddenly started to work. Mm. The movie, by the way, it was budgeted at $6 million, went $4.5 over budget. Yeah, yeah, it cost about 10 10 to $12 million to make. Took a lot longer to make than we thought it would. Um, And and then, of course, because it's so ambiguous, it has a lot of theories about it. Mm. Uh, One important theory is that the whole film is the dawn of man. I love that theory. <laughs> um, so I mentioned Nietzsche a long time ago. Oh, yeah. um, and, and this is what, so this is some of the Nietzsche theory. So Nietzsche has the idea of the Ubermensch mm. and the Ubermensch, which of course really means Superman is that the idea of humans evolving from apes and will eventually become something that will reject all of the traditional morality, kill God. And with the death of God, we will create new values, which are rather than, being the values of death and destruction, they will be the values of life-affirming creativity. So there's a lot of 2001 that links up with this, this idea of the evolution of man. Um, There's, you were talking about it a lot. There's the idea that this is a movie about conception and the ship is the sperm and Jupiter is the, is the egg and the, the going through the Stargate is the moment of conception. Absolutely. I mean, that is definitely a theory. There's a theory that this is an odyssey and therefore it's all Homer and that Hal is the Cyclops. Ah! What? Interesting. Fuck. A space odyssey. Oh my. It's like sitting there, like the bones. It's are like hiding. There. It's hiding in plain sight, isn't it? <laughs> There's something we've talked about quite a bit. I love that. That in this movie, humans act like machines and the machine acts like human. And that, yeah. and that in fact, this is about reclaiming our humanity and that we have to go through this journey. Mm, that's fair. Um, wow, that's a good theory. Um, do that Odyssey one. I'm gonna think about that forever now. Okay. There's a theory that the the hotel room that it's a zoo. Yeah, that theory I did. Hear. Oh, that, that he's, he's on display. Oh, yeah. Well, and here's it a says question: Earth creature, native habitat. So, <laughs> what? So, so the hotel room sequence I think is amazing. I just think that is a master filmmaker doing something saying i don't need to obey any of the laws of time and space and i'm going to show you a thing and it's not going to be clear what it is and you get to think about it i i'm trying to think of how to express this but part of me goes like one possibility is he was really in that hotel room for 70 years and that this is a way of 
time jumping through what was actually 70 years of experience for him and that he was at moments because he'd been there so long where in fact he was seeing younger versions of himself because mm-hmm. as because that was memory mm-hmm. uh as he and as he went to his death and there's another way of looking at it which is that no he was there we just saw real time he was there for f- seven minutes and that in those seven minutes he jumped consciousness from younger versions to himself to older versions of himself, that we have an accelerated version of time. And I don't know what it is. And it could be that any other m- number of things are happening. Well, if, to me, he's in a, if he's in essence in a black hole, so to speak, mm-hmm. there is no space or time in a black hole, right? That's what a lot of the scientists say. Like what we see as time is not the same, measured in the same way. So he could have been in there for seven years that felt like seven minutes. Yeah. Uh, that's certainly possible, right? We saw that in Interstellar, another Christopher Nolan film, when he has this idea of uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway on the planet. They're there on the planet for, what, 18, 28 minutes or something? But they've been gone for 28 years by the time they come right. back, and the other actor, the black actor, I forget who it is up there, is aged right. at, aged a lot since they and it was only like 18 or 28 minutes. And so this idea of time and does not function within space as the same way we'd see it here on Earth. So that's what I loved about that's what I love about this whole sequence. And it's phenomenal to me because it is a little on the nose for Kubrick because it is those are sculptures or Age of Enlightenment sculptures. Essentially, you're being enlightened, but he he dazzles you with all this other shit that's happening around it and i love that because it's like yes i could be on the nose but i'm so artistic i can get away with it by doing all these other things so i don't know how long i i don't know where i fit i'm I'm with you in this uh from your past point on the fulcrum point like i don't know how long he's been in this room but all i know is you can't put an a time limit on enlightenment it's going to happen when it happens and you also can't it's a put, great quote yeah you, <laughs> you also can't put a definitive explanation right. to a film like 2001 absolutely you know kubrick encouraged ambiguity yep and and that's why like you just said steve before how he distanced himself for arthur clark's book right because it explained too much but like after like when has kubrick ever really explained anything right yeah you know you look at the end of the shining with the picture from 1927 yeah uh i mean Eyes Wide Shut, I think, is a very ambiguous movie, and I think it's an underrated movie. Uh, it just was very different from what people were used to seeing in 1999, and it got very mixed reviews when it opened, but I thought it was vintage Kubrick. Well, and he he likes you to feel complicated things. Clockwork Orange being a huge example okay. of, here is this horrible person who you are strangely drawn to while they're doing terrible things, and then they are uh, corrected and punished, and then you feel bad for them mm-hmm. in a weird way. And that's very similar to what happens with Hal. And, and the thing, it's funny. So one of the things that comes up in my classes quite a bit is the idea of ambiguity. And, and a lot of times I'm asking my students, well, what does this mean? Why did this person do this? Why did this happen? What is, the, you know, and my students arrogantly will frequently say, oh, it's ambiguous. I'm like, no, you have to, you can't, you can't, it, is that you, because most of the time that's just their excuse for their bad right. filmmaking. And one of the things I try to explain is that there's two, generally two kinds of ambiguity. There is directed ambiguity and there's ambiguous ambiguity. So an example would be, is like if I have a gun and I point the gun at my head and then I point the gun at you and then I point it at my head and then I point it to you and then we cut to black and you hear a gunshot. That is directed ambiguity. Mm-hmm. It's very clear what the ambiguity is. I either shot myself or I shot you. Non-directed ambiguity is I don't know. Yeah. And and there's a there are things in 2001 that are directed. Does Hal did Hal make a mistake or did he lie? Right. Or was he right? And there are things in 2001 which are just ambiguous. What is happening in the Stargate? Yeah. What is happening in the hotel room? What does this movie mean? And, and 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 the interesting thing about it is like, this is why we come back to it. Yeah, you know, and and this is why it's hard when we first see it, but then we come back to it more and more. Like enlightenment is, it's hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, should we go to final thoughts? Final thoughts. Take it away, John. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, fine. As the baby in the room, I will, uh, oh. as, a, as a star child in the room. No, listen, uh, to me, the film uh, is, <sighs> when you talk about the love of film, the medium of film, it is an addiction. It is a drug. And 
when you find and it's so much there's so much of it though that the uniqueness the specialness sometimes can get lost and then a film comes along that reminds you why you love it that regresses you back to being a child that discovered film for the first time like you're discovering a monolith an ape the first time you see that first film that hooks you you're just like oh my god this is possible 2001 is like that it is like i said at the beginning a monolith of a film itself because you don't know what you you have to put your own meaning on it it's it's a black box that you could you project what you think you're seeing what you think it means it's all up to you but the film itself is an incredible experience it is an odyssey itself for you as the viewer throughout the whole film and no matter when you see it in your life you will come out different after having watched it and that's always the mark of the greatest films ever made and this is certainly in that uh conversation and it's certainly in the conversation of maybe the greatest film ever made regardless of genre which is incredible i i agree with that completely 2001 a space odyssey is a film that no matter how many times i see it i always get something new out of it uh no matter how big or how small there is there is always another another discovery that comes with each and every viewing it is it is a film that whenever it is playing on the big screen whether it's uh, if, like now with this 50th anniversary release or maybe sometimes the american cinematheque will show it in 70 millimeter i will drop everything to see the movie on the big screen. Once you've seen it on the big screen, I don't care how big your TV is, it's not the same thing. You have to see it on the big screen. And and wouldn't you know it, this episode of The Cinephiles, I discovered something new after your theory about the uh, the superpowers and you know yeah. the apes and the Russians and the Americans. I mean, that's a perspective I never never thought about. For a film, like I said at the top of the show, for a film to constantly draw you in to always keep you curious to you're not watching film like 2001 just for pure entertainment value like Rathacon or the empire strikes back or back to the future you're watching it to be stimulated to be challenged to 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 formulate your own opinions and it's one of the most challenging and thereby most rewarding cinematic experiences you will ever have and like a drug it's one that i Got to keep taking over and over again. <laughs> so I was thinking th- th- there's an idea in the creative process and in Hollywood that what they want is something new, that we always want to see something new. And in fact, that's not usually what's happening at all. What Hollywood mostly wants is they want the same but different, is they want things that right. are familiar and that reproduce things that they're – because Hollywood essentially is an extremely conservative industry, and new is dangerous, and even when something new comes along, like Star Wars is new and Die Hard is new, what happens is when that's successful, then all you will get is a million imitations of that thing because we will have the same, the different. And, and to some degree, those imitations almost tarnish the original. And the thing I've been thinking about 2001 is this is new, is that Kubrick set out, unlike any other big movie I can think of, to make something that was unlike anything else. Maybe Citizen Kane is the only other one that I think is new the way 2001, because he says, I reject what a film is. Mm -hmm. I reject story. I reject character. I reject plot. I'm going to show these different sequences that are connected thematically. I'm going to go into the world of science in this way that no one has ever done before and really just show you the nuts and bolts of space travel and how these things work. I'm going to have this one story where the most emotional character is not a human. Mm. And then I'm going to go through a journey through a Stargate, which is purely visual, that has no story whatsoever. And then I'm going to go into a completely experimental space that is entirely open to interpretation. I'm going to do all that and I'm going to hand it to you and you're going to deal with it. And that's what 2001 is but it's also it's also a film that's never been done before and it's never been done since that's what that's is that there is not it's not like people went oh let's do more of that nope that's again like citizen kane i think citizen kane is one of the most influential movies ever made and one of the least imitated yeah and that's true of this is that people didn't go oh yeah let's do more abstract things let's have more color they didn't do that is that and so consequently it still feels new that is why 2001 A Space Odyssey is the Citizen Kane of science fiction. <laughs> you already said Blade Runner was the Citizen Kane of science fiction. Okay, I'm changing my mind. <laughs> so I think yeah. that's what we think about uh, 
Sorry, did you have another thing? Yes, the connection to Citizen Kane, uh, what you just said. I think all of us who love film or can create film, like you've directed film, Steve, that kind of thing, and, and you know when something unique comes along that cannot be imitated, and there is no impulse to imitate it yeah. because it's yes. impossible to meet to match up. And it's not a coincidence that these two men were, the, Wells and Kubrick, one of the most unreachable geniuses that you'll ever encounter when you read stories about people around them you know uh both had daughters both had this kind of thing they they're so smart and they were accused of being abusive on set at times so but it is because they have no match so because they have no match they have their own approach to the world and so they see things in a ways that we, in ways that we can't so how can you imitate something that you can't even understand or conceive of how to create and so that's what's incredible about 2001 in comparison with Citizen Kane as well totally agree so i think that's what we think about so that's what we think about 2001 a space odyssey of course we always want to hear what you think you can visit us on our facebook page do a search for the cinephiles you can subscribe to us on itunes on stitcher on TuneIn, on youtube if you're on itunes please leave a review they help people find the show if you're on youtube leave a comment we love to read them if you want to support the show you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash the cinephiles where you can actually pick a movie for maybe the three of us to review if you want to make a special <laughs> request for scott mance to come on for a patreon pick we would love that um and Scott, I have a challenge for you. Oh, there we go. So you have been on for four of my favorite episodes now. I'm honored. Thank Ra you. Wrath of Khan, Blade Runner, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and now 2001: A Space Odyssey. But what I notice is all four of these are science fiction films. My challenge to you is for the next movie, we're going to do a different genre. Okay, I I am up for that challenge. <laughs> yeah. I am absolutely up for that challenge, and thank you for challenging me to do that, because clearly science fiction love is my science, wheelhouse. I, I love, love doing it. it with you. I but love it. I, I know there are other films that you love, absolutely. and I'd love to go in a different direction. Okay. So that is my challenge. I yeah. mean, We'd I would, love, we'd I love would, to do that. Yeah. I would love to do that with you guys. And, you know, listen, ever since I was a little kid, I've always been a big sci-fi guy. I still am, and it, it is definitely my favorite genre, no question, hands down. Uh, but yes, there are other films I like that are that are not in science fiction. I would love to do one. I got to think of a good one that measures up to the other four that we got to do together. Maybe the there. Citizen Kane. Have you done that yet? We've done Citizen. Yeah. Kane. Damn. I was spent a whole month doing it. We did a month. That must have been the Citizen Kane of podcast. <laughs> I believe it was. I think the month of Kane was the Citizen Kane of podcast. I would agree oh, with that. Wow. It was. Yeah, it was four episodes to good Citizen. Kane. It was incredible. That's um, awesome. Okay, so I think. Uh, that's it for this week. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris. John, where can they meet you? You can always reach me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. You can reach me at Movie Mance with a TZ, Movie Mance on Twitter and Instagram. And I think that's it for this week. We'll see you next time on The Cinephiles. 